uh, this year, and that comes to a close today. And so you will get a summary today of Acts chapter 24 through 28, but there will be some other passages. We'll go back towards the beginning, and you can see on your bulletin the scripture references for each of the three points today uh, so that you kind of know where we're going to be flipping ahead of time. If you don't have a Bible with you, then there's one in a pew somewhere around you that looks like this, has the story on top of it. It's page starting around 773 in that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that home as our gift to you. We ask that you read the first 10 pages there printed in color. It's a summary of kind of the whole story. Uh, And Acts plays a pretty key part in that story. As a matter of fact, that is one of those stories that if the story of Acts didn't happen, probably we would not be sitting in here today on the corner of San Juan and Lane Avenues to worship God as we look at his word. Um, Is everybody ready for Thanksgiving? Let's just go ahead. Who's traveling? Raise your hand. Are you traveling for Thanksgiving? A handful of us are going to travel a little bit. and, And so what is the stereotypical, quintessential question of traveling with children. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You may have felt that way as we've gone through the book of Acts. Are we there yet? I would imagine Paul feels that way as we're going to walk at his journey to Rome and see what all Paul has to go through to get to Rome uh, towards the end of the story. But I want you to think about the magnitude of this story for a second. This story started with a handful of scared and confused disciples that were once called uneducated uh, uh, Galileans, right? That you got this band of misfits that never should have been disciples of the one best rabbi in the world. And here you have them start, and then they end up, he he says that they're going to be witnesses, and they end up in this room, kind of upper room, scared, not knowing what the future holds for them, confused. And then Pentecost happens, and all these things happen, and it's amazing what God ends up doing. He uses Peter, of all people, to kind of get things going. The guy who often puts his foot in his mouth gets to use his mouth to share the gospel in, in such a powerful way at Pentecost. And really, we end up around 3,000 miles from Jerusalem at the end of our story today. Now, think about that for a second. 3,000 miles. No planes, no cars. You travel primarily by donkey and ship. Now, and ships, as we're going to see in Paul's story, don't always go smoothly, right? You're getting on a ship. It's not like getting on a cruise ship today and and getting upset because it wobbled a little bit. This is a rough journey that they go through. 3,000 miles, we see this thing take its way to Rome in such a powerful way. And you look at it. We were talking in our Bible study group this morning which I would highly encourage you to be a part of uh, one of those on Sunday morning so you can discuss the passage. Um, and, and there was like this paradox of this vulnerability of the church, right? It seemed like it was always on the edge of somebody squashing the whole thing. Like at any point, something could happen and just end the whole movement. But at the same time, it was this unstoppable, incredible movement that that just starts in this little dot on the map and just starts to make its way out and spread all across the map 3,000 miles and 30-something years as, as we've covered in this year. And I, I want to look at kind of the conclusion of the book of Acts and see three things that are strategic. Because as I think about this, here's what I think about. There's a confidence 
uh, in this that really only comes if you know the end of the story. Here's what I mean by that. I, I love action movies. Uh, I love movies where people shoot each other and punch each other and, and things like that. And, and there's always like this scene in a lot, of, a lot of action movies, there's this scene where the good guy or the bad guy gets arrested or, or, or detained. He's in chains or he's in something. And, and he's got this like look of confidence on his face. And you know if you're watching the movie, right, that means he knows something's good is about to happen in his favor. Some truck's about to drive through the building or some superhero's about to save him or some bomb's about to go off or, or he knows some information. He has knowledge of something that everybody else doesn't have and that's why he has this confidence, right? And you watch that smirk on their face and you think, what does he know that everybody else doesn't know? And in a sense, this is almost the confidence you see throughout the book of Acts. And Peter, with Paul, with Stephen, with so many of the disciples and the apostles as they face persecution. And it seems like they never stop and go, guys, this is getting painful. Maybe we should stop. Maybe this is, we got to be careful. If we're not careful, they're going to end up shutting this whole thing down. If we're not careful, then we won't be able to meet budget. And we got to make sure that we keep everybody happy so we can get the tithes and meet budget. We got to be careful or things are not going to go the way that we want them to go. No, they seem to walk with this, like, not arrogance, but this crazy confidence. Like they have knowledge that everybody else doesn't have. And they do. They stood with the resurrected Jesus Christ as in Acts chapter 1, 1 through 5. Look at this. In, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And until that day when he was taken up, and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. Everybody say wait. For the promise of the Father for which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Boy, this sparked something incredible. If you go back in our sermons, the very first sermon on the book of Acts, we talked about this passage and how God often calls us to wait. The, uh, the illustration we used, because it was actually Super Bowl Sunday when we started this. Super Bowl Sunday, we talked about this. I went back and looked at it this week, and um, the, the illustration we used is like a red-shirted athlete. Right, a red-shirted athlete when he is brought onto a college team and he's red-shirted, he knows his job is to wait. Right, he knows that come game day on Saturday, while everybody else is getting pumped up and everybody else is getting fired up in the locker room and they're ready to charge after it, and, and they put on their helmets and they run out of the tunnel, he knows he's going to be sitting on the bench. He knows as a red-shirt athlete, his job this season is to grow. His job this season is to work, to, to grow, to, to learn, to become bigger, b- bigger, faster, stronger, so that next season when they put him in and at the right time, he'll be most effective, right? And how often God brings us into seasons of waiting in our life. As a matter of fact, you read throughout the whole book of Acts, honestly, the whole Bible, and there are so many stories over and over and over where God says, I have something amazing coming, but for right now, I just need you to wait. I just need you to wait. 
and how frustrating that is for us. Because in our, our mind, we're so impatient. We want God to answer it now. But there's so many times God says, wait, just wait. So what do we do while we wait? We talked about this. We talked about that, that we wait on the Holy Spirit to lead us. We worship God through his word and active membership while we wait. We pray while we wait. We seek his guidance and we work while we wait. That we don't have to wait for God to tell us all the things that he's called us to. There may be specific things that he's called you to that he hasn't called me to, but there are general things that he's called all his disciples to, and we can find those in God's word. And we should do those while we wait. See, a good red shirt athlete doesn't just sit on the bench and watch the game. As a matter of fact, he works out with everybody else. He runs the drills. He, he is memorizing the playbook. He's, he's putting in the work so that when they pull the trigger and say, all right, it's your time, man, he's ready. Yes, he's a rookie. Yes, it's his first game, but he's ready. He's put in a whole year of work getting ready for that day. God may have you in a season of waiting right now because he's got something for you. Don't waste your waiting. Don't waste that time. Invest it in becoming stronger spiritually, in increasing your affection for the Lord, your readiness to hear his Holy Spirit, your abiding in his word. Don't waste your waiting. Invest it. And we're going to see more waiting If you go to chapter 24, I want to summarize for you. There will be a lot of summaries today because we're covering a lot of material as we land this plane. So we've left off at the end of chapter 23. So let's think about for a second what's going on. Paul said, I need to head to Jerusalem, and everybody said, don't head to Jerusalem. If you head to Jerusalem, it's going to end badly for you. A prophet says that you'll be bound up, and he says, look, guys, I know all that. The Lord's already told me that's how Jerusalem's going to go, but he's also told me to go. And this is where we talked about God calls for our sanctification, not our safety. We have a calling to follow him and be obedient, even in things that seem unsafe at times, and And so Paul makes his way to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem. James greets him, hears about all that God's doing amongst the Gentiles. James is excited, but James says, here's what we need to do. We need you to head to the temple. We need you to worship in this way with this vow, with these men. If you'll do this, then people will see just how Jewish you are, and they'll know that you're not against Judaism. They'll know you're not against God's people. And so Paul does that. He submits to the elders, the authorities over him, and he does exactly what they ask him to do. And when he finds himself in the temple, it doesn't matter if we do everything right. The enemy doesn't care about the truth. So when they get him, it's on trumped-up charges. It's on made-up stuff. They end up pulling him out of there, saying that he brought a Gentile in there with him. It causes a riot. The riot starts to break out. People want to know what's going on. The Romans intervene, and they're trying to get to the bottom of what's happening, and they can't get to the bottom of it. People are shouting all sorts of different things. There's all this confusion. And I just want to remind us, going back to when we preached on Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, we looked at the Holy Spirit and how we often, when we think about the Holy Spirit, sometimes we think about it in a wrong way, that when the Holy Spirit comes, it'll create these um, chaotic things. And, and I want to tell you, the Holy Spirit always, always, always brings clarity, not confusion. The Holy Spirit will always point us clearly to the gospel, not just random things. 
The Holy Spirit has a job. The Holy Spirit has a purpose to point us to the Father. And so we, we see this confusion amongst the crowd. And so they bring him in to the barracks. And, and then they, they think, well, let's flog him. Because that's how we figure out things these days. We just beat people. And so they bring him in. They start to tie him up. And Paul says, hey, just want to ask, is it okay for you to do this with a Roman citizen? And so then they freak out because if they were to beat a Roman citizen without trying them, then they might get beaten or even killed or thrown in jail. So they kind of freak out. And so the tribune wants to keep him safe. And then Paul's nephew warns the tribune that, things, uh, that there's a trap set. They're going to ask to bring Paul again before the Jewish leaders. And they've got 40 men who have vowed not to eat until they kill Paul. And so the tribune goes, look, I got to get this guy off my hands. Because once he said he's a Roman citizen, there's a legal obligation at that point to keep him safe. And so he thinks, I don't want that responsibility anymore, so I'm going to send him up the ladder. And so he sends him over to Felix. So we pick up in chapter 24 where he sends him over to Felix. And so now he gets before Felix in Caesarea. And so the Jews come, and they're going to have this Roman trial. And so they hire a lawyer or an orator named Tertullus. And Tertullus is a silver-tongued guy. And so he comes, man, just singing the praises of Felix. Now, you have to understand, Jewish people under the, 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 uh, the oppressive thumb of Rome are not truly fans of anything the Roman government does. But what does Tertullus say? He says, look, Felix, we're so blessed to have you, man. You've done such a great job under, under your reforms under your leadership, you've kept us in peace. We can't control ourselves, and so we just submit ourselves to you. And you take such good care of us, Felix, and so we know you'll do a good job on this as well and, and brings the charge. And then when, Paul, when, when it comes to Paul's turn, he basically goes, I understand that you're the guy I have to talk to. So here's what happened. He, there's no flattery. There's no, there's no flowery language. Paul just goes into the truth because Paul continually points to truth. And Paul takes advantage of this to start to share his story and the truth of the resurrection. But Felix puts it off like everyone else. And Felix take, and so Felix and his wife, Drusilla, which for your own entertainment, you ought to Google and figure out the story of Drusilla. It's a fascinating one. I don't have time to do it today, although I'm tempted just because it's fun. But Felix and his wife, Drusilla, come, and they visit Paul in prison a lot. And they're, they're questioning, and they're asking him things. And Paul, of course, takes advantage of this opportunity to point them to the truth. But all Felix really wants, the Bible tells us, is a bribe. He's, he's hoping that Paul will wise up, grease palms a little bit, and move this thing on along. But Paul was never interested in freedom as his ultimate goal. Paul was never interested. That was never the main purpose here to get justice. He wasn't seeking self-justice. He was seeking an opportunity to point to Jesus. So Paul starts to tell the truth. Look at verses 25 through 27 in chapter 24. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control... And the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he had hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, 
Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to know, do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. I want you to see here, Paul shows us some strategic patience. Some strategic patience here. There's a verse here that struck me when I read it. Look at verse 27. Look at just the first part of the sentence there. When two years had elapsed. You notice how quickly Luke just rolls right over that and just kind of writes, look, listen, if I'm falsely imprisoned for two years, you're going to hear about it. You're going to hear a lot about it. You're going to hear me crying about it. You're going to hear me crying foul. I'm going to be mad. I am not as patient as Paul is here, but the Holy Spirit brings him that patience, I think, and I think it's strategic patience and showing. And, and remember what we talked about. The whole, sometimes the Holy Spirit calls us to wait. Look, sometimes Paul shows us here that sometimes God calls us to wait in really unfortunate circumstances. I, I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but Paul put in prison for something he didn't even do. There, it's a made-up, trumped-up charge that the Roman government can't even find a right thing to charge him about. If you really look at this whole story, the, the Roman government has no idea what to do with this man. It actually mirrors a lot the story of Jesus in his last days, right? As Jesus comes for the Roman government, brought to him by the Jewish leaders, and they're kind of going, this seems like it's really your problem and not our problem. And the Roman government doesn't know what to do with Jesus. And here the Roman government doesn't know what to do with Paul. And so Felix, trying to avoid the whole thing, because you have to understand, Felix's job when it comes to his superiors is kind of to stay under the radar. He does not want his name being mentioned in Caesar's household. His job is to be over these Jewish people and keep them in Caesarea and keep them from rioting. He does not want a riot. This thing, whole, the whole thing started with a riot. And so if he just lets Paul go, he knows that a riot will most likely start. But he can't figure out what to charge him with. And so what does he do? He just procrastinates. Sometimes in our lives, with our sin, we do the same thing, don't we? We don't know what to do with it. We know if we really acted in repentance and righteousness that it would stir things up in a way that we don't intend it to or desire it to. We also don't really know how to do it on our own because we don't seek the Lord because we know if we ask the Lord about it, if we take it to the Lord, we say, what is this? Then he might just tell us exactly what to do and we might kind of know what he's going to say and we don't really want to do what he's going to say. And so we just put it off. Felix just puts it off. And here's what I want you to see as a word of encouragement. And whatever waiting God has you in in your life right now, don't lose heart. It might just very well be a part of your plan of sanctification that God has for you. It might just very well be that God is going to use this to strengthen you if you don't waste your waiting. Don't waste the waiting. Whatever God has you in, worship, work, in your salvation in this. Are we there yet? I can't imagine Paul just sitting there for two years. Later, we'll see another 
two-year stint in his life where it tells us all these amazing, great things that happened. It doesn't tell us anything about these two years. It just says that two years passed. Felix had put it off long enough that he either got transferred, promoted, demoted, something happened, and Felix is gone, and somebody else succeeds him, named Festus. And waiting is almost always a part of what God calls us to do. You realize that? Almost always, in our call in life from God, there is a waiting. There's a dependence on him. This doesn't mean that God has left us. It just means it's time to wait. And it's not always that things have gone wrong. Sometimes it's just the plan. Second thing we'll look at is a strategic singularity. Here's what I mean by singularity. The reason Paul can stay so on track like he does is because he has, he has a singularity about his mind. He knows what God has called him to do. He knows what's up. He knows he's supposed to get to Rome. He knows he's supposed to take the gospel to Rome. And so all this stuff doesn't shake him because he's seen God show up in his life over and over and over again. When he met Jesus on that road to Damascus, things changed for him. And all of a sudden, there was a singularity to his life. A singularity about the gospel, a singularity about the glory of God in his life. And it was no longer about his safety. It was no longer about his comfort. It was no longer about his ambitions. It was no longer about the things that he wanted, his preferences. It now became completely about the purpose that God had in his life. And everything else didn't matter. He had such singularity that he would ignore beatings that were coming. He would ignore pain and just walk right into it because he knew this was the path that God had for him. Wouldn't it be such a blessing in our life to have that kind of singularity? That you knew every day, here's where I'm going. Here's what's going on. I know, I don't know what the destination is. I don't know what the path looks like, but I know this is where I'm heading. I know this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to pursue righteousness in my life. I'm trying to make much of Jesus in my life. I'm trying to use the gifts God has given me. I'm trying to walk in the spirit. I'm trying to abide in the word of God. I'm trying to walk in that road of sanctification. If you had a singularity of sanctification, it would change the way you see everything in your life. It would change the way you see your role at work, at home, at church, at school. It would change the way you see conflict. It would change the way you see times of difficulty. It would change the way you see temptation. It would change the way you see opening the word of God in your life. It would change the way you see yourself and your identity. I am convinced if you had a singularity of sanctification, do you get what I mean when I'm saying that? That you knew your only job was to grow in Christ and do what he tells you to do. Imagine the freedom that comes with that kind of singularity. A freedom that Paul experienced in prison that we don't experience in our own freedom. A freedom that a man in chains can boldly submit himself to government authorities because he has a singularity of his sanctification. Don't you think it would make you a better husband, better wife, better father, better mother, better friend if you had a singularity of sanctification? In our Bible study groups this morning, the main point was 
The love of Christ is the only sufficient motivation for, the king, for kingdom living and gospel proclamation. I'm going to say that again. The love of Christ is the only sufficient motivation for kingdom living and gospel proclamation. See here, this is what we talked about in our Bible study group this morning. We can never truly understand the love of Christ in our life until we truly understand the fear of God in our life. And we can't understand the fear of God until we understand our depravity and our desperate need for a Savior. When we realize just how bad the bad news is, that we don't even remotely measure up to the glory of God, that we know that the Bible says all fall short of the glory of God, and we recognize that it's not that I just barely fell short, but I fell so short that it is right and just and fair for God to send me to hell for eternity. We need to get that. We need to understand that that's true. And that's really, really bad news. Pastor, you're, you're bringing me down. Good, I've got to bring you down before we can bring you up. You have to get the bad news fully. Listen, and, and this is something we tend to forget. We tend to lose grasp of this. And we start to, when we do, we almost always end up diluting the gospel into just good behavior. And when we dilute the gospel and what it means to be a follower of Christ into merely good behavior, we take the power out of the cross. If it were just about being good, why would Jesus have to die? Just leave us an instruction manual. The Bible is not just an instruction manual. It is not just basic instructions before leaving earth. The Bible is a story of the scandalous grace and love of Jesus Christ for people who treat him as enemies. Who he brings to the dinner table to be with him, adopted as children. It's, so when we say the love of Christ, when we say that he's stronger, that my sin was strong, but he was stronger There is a profound truth to that that ought to shake you to your very core. That's how you find a singularity of sanctification. When you recognize that on my own, I am just an enemy of God. But in the power of Christ, I can be an ambassador for him. And I know that that's my job. My job is not husband, wife, son, daughter, grandmother, grandfather, friend, student, teacher, accountant. My job is to be an ambassador for Christ, to live with that kind of singularity. I love to see little illustrations in my children. Um, This morning, my son came to get a donut. It's what you do on Sunday mornings, right? You come get a donut. And uh, if you get here early enough and beat everybody else to the donuts and my son comes to get a donut, and he's looking at the, He's just looking at it. He's just looking at the donut, and somebody says something to him, ask him a question, and he just keeps staring at the donut. And then somebody else says, "Hey, you need to put your donut on a napkin," and he just keeps staring at the donut. And no matter what anyone says to him, he's not listening because he has a singularity, right? He has a he has a focus. He's laser focused in on this donut with these sprinkles on it because he loves sprinkles. And then finally, somebody goes, cash, cash. He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, put your donut on a napkin. Puts his donut on a napkin. And he says, somebody had a question for you. Oh, okay. He had to get pulled out of his singularity of focus. 
And we laugh at that and we see that. I look, I, I do the same thing. My wife could tell you a hundred stories of me having singularity of focus and just tuning out everything else in the world. This is, Paul tells Timothy later when he's in prison and he writes to Timothy. He says, endure suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We brought this passage up a lot. Endure suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Not distracted by civilian affairs, desiring to please the one who enlisted you. We talked about that last week. I want you to think about that, that singularity of focus. This is what Paul has, is a strategic singularity. Think back, this, this, the, the fact that God works mightily amongst our suffering and we're able to walk boldly through it with a singularity is not a new idea. In Acts chapter 4, the persecution is starting to really rise and the believers boldly pray for boldness, recognizing that Jesus died in persecution and then rose from the dead in that very city. Look at this, Acts 4, 27 through 29. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, God anointed who? Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. God anointed these people. They're, they're praying and they're reminding themselves in their prayer about the power of God and what he's done through Jesus Christ. And in the midst of their own persecution, they're recalling exactly what happened to Jesus. And the way they phrase it is fascinating. Whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, nobody gets off the hook here to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now look, Lord, look upon their threats. So they're receiving threats. And what is their prayer? Is their prayer, Lord, protect me? Is their, is their prayer, Lord, keep me safe? Is their, is their prayer, Lord, be against them? What do they pray? And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. I pray for that kind of boldness, church. What if we quit trying to change our circumstances to make them more comfortable for ourselves and just started chasing whatever God's calling us to? And listen, I mean like recklessly. Look, I, look Pastor, you're getting dangerous. I know it's dangerous. I'm, I never said it was safe in the first place. Neither did the Bible. What if every one of us got on our knees and begged God to tell us what was next for us and just sat there and fasted and prayed like the disciples do in the New Testament, in the book of Acts here, and we waited for God to call. We waited on the Holy Spirit like they did. And when the Holy Spirit called us to something we just went with boldness. What if regardless of our circumstances, what if, what if when our circumstances are bad, instead of just complaining about them and thinking, man, this is not what I wanted in my life. This is not the direction I wanted to go. I didn't want to still be single. I didn't want to be in a miserable marriage. I didn't want to be dirt poor. I didn't want to be addicted. I didn't want to be these things. What if, what if we just chased Jesus? What if instead of always chasing comfort, we just chased Jesus in our lives, a singularity of sanctification. Matthew 6, pursue first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the rest of this will be added unto you. Stop 
chasing comfort. Stop chasing money. Stop chasing popularity. Stop chasing pleasure. Stop chasing just the avoidance of pain. Stop chasing things to make you feel better about your identity that will all fail. Everything you chase to identify you will fall short, except for child of God. Child of God. When you grasp the weight of that truth, child of God, your circumstances don't matter anymore. Your circumstances don't don't have as much of an effect. They, They lose their power. Your enemies lose power. Temptations lose power. Circumstances lose power when you rest your identity in the fact that you are a called child of God. When you recognize that you shouldn't be. When you recognize that you are among the chief of all sinners, that you could, like Paul, think, man, this is crazy that that Jesus would use me. I I hope you've had that moment where you think, man, this is crazy. I remember when God was calling me into ministry, I had a comfortable path ahead of me. I was assistant manager at a pastry shop, loved it. I loved my job. I loved what I was doing. My passion was making bread. And I did it. I made bread. That's what I got to do every day. I got to wake up early every day and make bread. And I would spend four hours every morning just listening to audiobooks of the Bible or, or theology or all these things. It was my favorite season in life. It was so comfortable. And I remember a guy started to speak to me and say, I want you to quit and just follow me. Where? Well, we'll get to that part. But you got to quit first. No, 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 no. See, you don't understand, Lord. I, I, I'm three months from getting married. This is a really bad idea. My father-in-law is already not a big fan. I quit my job. This is not going to go well. Look, it... You may think this is some glorious thing I get to do. This was the scariest decision of my life. You know why it was scary for me? Because I know me. And I'll be honest, I know I'm not somebody to be trusted. I know I am a selfish sinner. And not just in the general sense of like, well, we're all sinners. Like, I know me. I've deceived people. I've manipulated people. I've been self-serving most of my life. And the idea of me standing behind a pulpit still scares me. This is not what I would choose to do. I'm not asking you to figure out the pros and cons of which direction and path you ought to head down. Uh, Look, use wisdom. Don't don't be unwise, but understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's what the Bible says. That your starting point for figuring out wisdom is to recognize how much you need God in your life. And then have a singularity. Chase that singularity. All right, let's keep going. I'm going to run out of time. Let's summarize there from 24, 27 through 26. We're going to cover a lot here real quick. (laughs) So Festus replaces Felix, who had delayed... Paul for two years, leaving him in prison. Festus inquires and wants to know what's going on here, and he figures out this is just a religious problem. So he offers to Paul 
Do you want me to just send you back to Jerusalem so you can go be tried in Jerusalem? He's really wanting to get his hands off of this whole thing. And Paul gives an emphatic no. No, 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 no. Look, and he says, look, if, if I've done something worth being killed over, I'm not trying to avoid death. If God's called me to die, I'll die. But I'm not going to go back and not get the opportunity to go to Rome where God's called me. I told you I'm going to Rome. I want to go to Rome. And, and so Paul makes an appeal to Caesar. See, there were two points in the story of Paul being on trial where things changed because of his Roman citizenship. The first is when he's tied up, about to be flogged, and so he says, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this. I'd rather ask them, can you do this? And they realize then that they can't, and they've got to walk him through a certain system. But then as a Roman citizen, when he says, I appeal to Caesar, I mean, it's done. He's heading to Caesar. Nobody else gets to decide. Nobody else gets to say. And just so you know who's Caesar at this time, it's a guy named Nero. And if you don't know anything about history, Nero was not the guy you want to submit yourself to. Nero is crazy. Nero is an emotional child. Nero is an absolute wacko. This is not the guy you want to go, you know, I'm just going to see what Nero has to say about this. And so why would Paul do that? Why would Paul make the appeal to Nero? Because it was never about Nero, and it was never about Paul, and it was never about how this trial got decided. It was about getting to Rome and sharing the gospel knowing that that probably ended badly for him. He walked right into it with a singular focus, a singularity. So Festus says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Then all of a sudden King Agrippa shows up in town and Felix wants to talk to him because uh, Festus wants to talk to him. Festus is not, uh, not Jewish, doesn't have a great understanding of Judaism and Christianity. Uh, King Agrippa is Jewish. Uh, and so he shows up. Uh, King Agrippa's not a great guy either. Um, shows up with his sister. They have an inappropriate relationship. So he shows up, and Festus asks him to speak into the situation as another leader. And, and so they had all this pomp and circumstance, and they set up with King Agrippa and make this whole deal. And Paul comes before him, and, and basically Agrippa tells Festus, look, there's really no reason for this guy to be in prison. And if he wouldn't have made the appeal to Caesar... You could just let him go. I mean, he's done nothing against the law. There's no reason to have him here, but he appealed to Caesar, so you have to let him go. It, here, here, I want you to read this, Acts chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. For the king knows, and Paul speaking, for the king knows about these things, King Agrippa, and I speak, and, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. He, shared, he has shared his testimony. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you, have, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would that God, not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am. Well, except for these change you got me in. See, Paul has an, an opportunity here before King Agrippa to appeal for his freedom to a man who understands Jewish prophets and Jewish law, and he could, he could lay it all out there. And he does. He shares his testimony. He shares his story about... And, and listen, here's what's so great about Paul's testimony. 
It's not facts that can be debated or refuted. Agrippa, most likely as a Jew, knew who Paul was before this whole thing went down, knew that he was someone government-sanctioned to go after Christians, pull them out of their homes, beat them, kill them, and imprison them. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he's flipped sides so much that here he is in prison willing to die for Christ. There's power in a testimony. I've heard so many people say, it's hard, and I, I get this. It's hard. I totally get this. It's hard to share the gospel with my family members because they really know who I am. Maybe that's exactly why you should share with them. So I want to tell you, there are people who knew me before Jesus that if you went to them today and said, yeah, I was at church yesterday, my pastor is Jimbo Stewart, they would go, what? Surely not the same Jimbo that I know. That guy should not be a pastor. There's some things you need to know about him if you're going to sit under this man. And you'd probably go, I already know. He's told me those things. Listen, maybe, maybe your story is exactly what your family needs to see as you chase a singularity of sanctification. You grow in Christ and they notice, man, there's just something different about you. Well, you know what it is? It's not... It's not willpower. It's not positive thinking. It's not a diet. It's Jesus. I can't take any credit for it, and I'm still not perfect. I'm still not there. I still got a lot of areas I'm growing in. I'm going to tell you, when I met Jesus, it changed me. I hope that's true for you. Listen, I hope that that your encounter of Jesus Christ is not some casual, philosophical, cultural moment in your life. I I hope that Jesus wrecked things for you. And if you don't know Jesus, I'm going to be so bold as to invite you to ask Jesus to wreck things for you. Not to make it comfortable. Not to make you have all your dreams come true. But to use you. To save you. Festus and Agrippa agree... Paul could just be released, but his appeal to Caesar makes it so that he has to go to Caesar. Thing is, Paul's not playing checkers here. He's playing chess. Right? I mean, he, he, could, he could have played this differently. If this whole thing was about getting free, that means he could have just not gone to Jerusalem in the first place. Because he knew going to Jerusalem was going to end badly for him, but he chose to go to Jerusalem because that's what God had called him to do. When things went down, he was, he's a great arguer, and he could have found ways to argue for his freedom, but he didn't argue for his freedom. He argued for the sake of the gospel. Every time he's given the opportunity to speak, he does, he does often say, look, I haven't done anything wrong here. What this is about. See, he could just leave it at that, right? He could just leave it at, I haven't done anything wrong here. Which one time he does that, and he gets slapped. But he could just leave it and I didn't do anything wrong here, so you should let me free. But then he just stirs the pot further, right? But he's playing, he's playing chess. He's not playing checkers. He's being strategic here, strategically led by the Holy Spirit. Third point, he's also strategically sent. He's sent on that singular purpose. I want to ask you, if you were to look at your life and evaluate 
What's your one purpose? Not what's your purpose statement. Not what do you wish your one purpose was. Not what purpose are you trying to live out. But if you looked at the, the motive behind the majority of your decisions, the majority of how you spend your money, the majority of how you spend your time, the majority of what you watch and listen to and read and, and, and who you talk to and what you talk about, if you were to find a way to quantify all of that into a singular purpose, not looking in the future and what you hope will be, but looking in the past, let's say over the last six months, if you could quantify and evaluate that and go, what was my singular purpose, what would it be? For most of us, it would just be me, right? Avoiding pain, pursuing pleasure, doing what's comfortable. Listen, you're not alone in that. That's what trips up so many people. It trips me up. I struggle with that. I have to battle. I have to see it in myself and, and take thoughts captive and, and remind myself of what my purpose is in life. And then realize that we are all strategically sent. So... He's made the appeal to Caesar, so he's got to head to Rome. We're going to summarize the last bit here real fast. I'd encourage you to read this this week on your own, 24 through 28. So they set sail for Rome on a ship with a whole bunch of other people and prisoners and Roman officials. And Paul gets word from an angel that they don't need to go this way. They don't need to do this. And so he speaks up. And understandably, they don't listen to him. I say that because, listen, this guy's just a prisoner on the ship. Why would you listen to him? Why would you do what he says? And so he says, listen, if we go that way, it's going to go bad. So they do, and it does. Storm hits, and everybody's freaking out. They're throwing things overboard, and they go 14 days without eating. He gets another word from the Lord that, hey, God said he's got to get me to Rome, and he's decided you get to come too. Really, all that matters is that I get to Rome, but God's been so kind to say that everyone on this ship is going to make it. Nobody's going to die. Now, we are going to get shipwrecked. We're about to be shipwrecked, but we're going to survive. So sure enough, what happens? Well, they get shipwrecked off the island of Malta, and just like he said, so people are starting to feel like maybe he's got something to go on, but the soldiers realize, man, we can't bring all these prisoners and keep an eye on them on this island. What if they escape? What if they get away? If they escape and get away, that's on me. So the soldier's plan is to kill all the prisoners, but the lead guy, the tribune goes, no, because Paul's been right a couple of times now. I don't want you killing him. So let's just go on board. So they go on board. They're received well by the people on the island of Malta. They get around a campfire singing Kumbaya. Paul starts to stoke the fire a little bit, and a viper comes out and bites his arm. And everybody goes, see, told you this was a bad dude. This is a bad guy. A viper just bit him. He's going to die. He's a murderer. And so he's about to die. He's getting his justice right now. So he shakes the snake off to the fire, and everything's fine. Nothing bad happens to Paul. And so they start to think, who is this guy? So then they find out the lead guy on the island, his dad is sick. And so Paul comes and he heals him. And people hear that he's healed him. And all of a sudden, he's healing people all over the island. And all sorts of amazing ministries happening. What's fascinating about that is it was all the sovereignty of God. Because you look at it, and the island of Malta, if you look on a map, there's this little bitty dot you can barely recognize as even a dot out in the middle of the ocean, and you just go, what is this little bitty dot? What's well, the island of Malta that they end up on, and they end up there to be able to do exactly what happens and 
show glory to God. And he says, we're going to make it to Rome. Don't worry. And so through the storm, through the shipwreck, through being threatened by soldiers, through being bitten by a snake, you cannot stop God's plan. They finally make it to Paul, make it to Rome, and Paul ends up on house arrest within three days of being on house arrest. He calls together the Jewish leaders of Rome. And he says, listen, you maybe have heard about me, and maybe you've heard that I've been spreading some news about the Messiah, and I know that it may not sit with you well, but I want to just go ahead and talk with you before things get going here. And the Jewish leaders go, really, nobody sent any word about you, but we have heard about this movement, the way that you're a part of, and all we know is that it's condemned everywhere, but we want to know more. So they set a time to bring all the Jewish leaders in the city and all the Jewish like top people to come listen to Paul talk about the way. And all these people gather and Paul talks and God starts to move mightily. I want you to think back for a second. Go back to Acts chapter 1 in your mind, verse 8. It's the thesis statement of the book. Jesus in resurrected form speaking to the disciples says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, think about this. If you look at the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, you see that the gospel goes to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. To a Jewish person at this time, when they heard the phrase to the ends of the earth, their thoughts would have gone to Rome. It was the cultural center of civilization as they knew it. They, their mind would immediately thought all, all roads lead to Rome. The ends of the earth is Rome. We've got to get the gospel to Rome. 3,000 miles away, 30 years later after Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 30 years, 3,000 miles, shipwrecks, beatings, imprisonments, martyrs, all sorts of things trying to shut this whole thing down. And where does it go? It goes to Rome. And read what it says. Turn in your Bible to the very end of the book of Acts. And look at verses 30 and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I don't know what God has you waiting in right now, but I know that if you will strategically, with a singularity of sanctification, chase Jesus, there will be a phenomenal moment at the end of it. A phenomenal moment, maybe you in prison. But listen to this. He's not, he's not just in a regular prison. As a matter of fact, he's on house arrest, so he kind of has to stay where he's at. But he gets all that he needs. He gets supplies. People can visit him. People can come see him. And so people do. People come see him like crazy. People are constantly coming to hear more about what he has to say. This is, 
Paul accomplishes to the ends of the earth right here in this prison. You know why? Because flip through your Bible and start looking at the letters that he wrote, Philippians and Philemon and, and all these things that he wrote in here, the gospel of the New Testament that we're taking now to the ends of the earth, that a percentage of every dollar you give here goes to the International Mission Board, where we send missionaries all across the world. There are unengaged, unreached people groups in this world that the International Mission Board is strategically developing teams and sending people into dangerous areas to share the gospel. And you know what they'll use to share it? The Word of God. Paul wrote a lot of that, sitting in this prison for two years, having no idea what the impact would be. He's just thinking, I'm writing a letter to Onesimus about Philemon. He's just thinking, I'm writing a letter to the Philippian church. He's just thinking, I'm writing a letter to these people. He had no idea that in 2018 in Jacksonville, Florida, we'd be opening this up and the Holy Spirit would be speaking to our hearts, challenging us to trust him in the waiting, challenging us to be singular focused on sanctification and challenging us to be strategically sent for God's purpose. So stop focusing on your circumstances. Focus on your calling. The devil would love to distract you with civilian affairs. But I want you to desire to please the one who enlisted you. I want you to focus on Jesus, not your circumstances. Let him use your circumstances. Let him take care of your circumstances. Trust him more than your circumstances. Don't get distracted. Singular focus on Jesus. Last thing I want you to see is the story really doesn't have an ending. This whole thing's been about what's going to happen to Paul in trial, it seems, but it's not. It was never about Paul being on trial and whether he gets off or whether he gets acquitted or tried. And look, we can look into history and we find some things that tell us most likely what happened to Paul. But God did not choose in his infinite wisdom through, through the author Luke to tell us those things. Whether that be the timing of the writing or, or God just not choosing to put it there, we don't know. But we know, and it doesn't mean we can't study those things, but we know that this book intentionally kind of ends with a cliffhanger. You ever watch an action movie and then realize, oh, there's going to be a sequel to this? Because the way it ends, you're like, what? What happens now? Then you've got to wait like five years? I hate that. This is why we binge everything on Netflix, so that you don't have to wait. You see the cliffhanger, and you just go to the next episode, right? The reason there's a cliffhanger is because we are living out. The rest of the to the ends, of the ends of the earth part. Your story has a purpose, a singular purpose. Pursue that. Chase that. Not your circumstances, not your comfort, not your pleasure, not your ambitions. Chase Jesus and let him tell the rest of your story. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. I thank you for the book of Acts and what it's meant to me this year. 
Lord, I pray that we would not be distracted by civilian affairs, but we would recklessly chase after you. Lord, that you would use us for your name, for your glory. Lord, if there's anyone in here that needs to respond to a call in their life this morning, whether that be a call to salvation, a call to missions, a call to ministry, a call to repentance. Lord, I know you've, you've put a call in every one of our hearts, whether we're listening to it or not. Let us respond in obedience. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.